0: Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the joy and privilege it is to know you. We thank you that we can meet this morning in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to hear you speak to us in your word. And we pray now as we consider it that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to believe it and the will to put it into practice through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, what do you believe about life after death? What do you believe about life after death? Well, just uh, this week, I've been uh, reading this uh, book on the screen. It's called "Talking with Your Kids About God: Thirty Conversations That Every Christian Parent Must Have." And essentially, what the book is is trying to do is to teach parents. Uh, how to teach apologetics to their children. So it deals with all, all manner of questions like how do we know that God exists? Uh, where does our life come from? Does, does science disprove Christianity? And, and so on. And, and it boils down these questions into simple conversations that a parent can have with their child. I think it's a, it's a great concept because so often we are faced with questions about our faith. Uh, the atheist will come to us and say, Look, we're just products of evolution. There's no cause, no reason, no purpose. We're just atoms that have randomly strung together that will one day die and then disintegrate again. Is there life after death? No. Get over it. It's a pretty depressing view of life, really. It requires you to suppress the clear evidence for God in creation, in history and in scripture, but if that's, if that's your worldview, and there's no life after death, then you may as well become a materialist and just accumulate as much money and possessions as you can, have as much experiences and, and maximize your happiness and minimize your suffering because this is all there is. Now, of course, that is a minority view here in Malaysia. Most Malaysians believe that there is an afterlife, whether they're Buddhist or Hindu or, or Muslim or even a free thinker. It's just that that future is entirely uncertain in their minds. Uh, You know that uh, if you've uh, ever talked to a a Buddhist or a Hindu, they they never know with with their reincarnation how it's going to go. Uh, The Muslim doesn't know whether Allah is going to show them wrath or mercy. That's why non-Christian funerals are so often filled with such grief and hopelessness. And again, if that is is your view, you're uncertain what the future holds, then you'll probably accumulate as many good works as you can in the hope that the future will be bright and not be bleak. Of course, others of us just try to avoid the topic of death altogether. We foolishly ignore the fact that we're one day going to die, and we hope irrationally we'll be okay, even though we've done nothing to prepare for it. Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus wants us to be certain about the afterlife. He wants us to be certain that there is life after death, and that in that life after death, he will rule as Lord. Well, you see, uh, the topic of life after death is raised in Jesus' showdown with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. I like to think of this as a a bit like a heavyweight boxing match, and you've got Jesus there in the red corner, uh, and the religious leaders are over there in the blue corner. And the sparring began as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, riding on the donkey, hailed as king, and cleared out the temple. In response, the the religious leaders punch back. They're looking for a way to destroy him, to get him on the ground. But they can't do it because of the crowds, and so they try to trip him up with their questions. And round one, they question his personal authority. They they say to him, what authority have you to do these things? Round two, they seek to trap him politically. They ask, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar Caesar? Or not. But thus far, it is Jesus too, and the religious leaders zero, as Jesus' brilliant replies silence his opponents. Well, now in round three, as we come to our passage, the Sadducees enter the ring with a question of their own. And it is the question Is there life after death? The Sadducees are introduced to us in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Now, the Sadducees were a religious group. They were made up mostly of priests. They emerged sometime during the the second century BC. And we're told here, uh, one of their core beliefs, they denied a belief in the resurrection of people on the last day. Now, this belief is a flat contradiction of the teaching of the Old Testament. Here's four verses on the screen. Daniel 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Or Isaiah 26. Next slide. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Job chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been thus destroyed yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. My my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Psalm 16, therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. And the Old Testament is is just full of verses like this that teach about the resurrection of the dead. But the problem for the Sadducees was that they only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the ones written by, by Moses. And so they would have rejected all of these verses as not Scripture. And so the Sadducees had no hope past the grave. They were sad, you see. (laughs) So, Father, I just had to get that one in there somewhere. (laughs) But to justify their belief, or their rejection in belief in the resurrection, they challenged Jesus with this tricky question, and they set it up for us in verse 28. They asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there is a law. They're referring to the law of levirate marriage, which comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25. This is what it says. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger, her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of her husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now, it might at first sight sound like a, a bit of a rather disturbing concept, isn't it? Uh, I wonder how many uh, wives here today would like to marry their husband's brother. But it is a good law that was designed by God to stop a family name dying out. It was was intended to provide for the widow and and preserve their inheritance within the family. Of course, this is the law that is applied in the book of Ruth. You might remember Naomi, her husband dies, her, her two children die. They also have no children. And so Boaz, the relative, marries Ruth to preserve the family line. It's levy right marriage. So they continue with their question, verse 29. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. After Afterward, the woman also died. Now uh, we wonder what's... Uh, going on here? Or what, what did she do to the, to the seven brothers? I mean, did she poison them? <laughs> or at the end was, you know, seven brothers, it's enough. She just dropped dead at the end of it. She couldn't take an eighth one. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a hypocritical question, isn't it? Because they don't even believe in resurrection from the dead. It's, it's extremely unlikely, to say the least, that this would happen. But you can kind of imagine the smile on their faces, isn't it? as they look at Jesus and they say, how are you going to get out of this one? It's also an evil question, isn't it? Because it actually mocks and undermines the very intention of this law. It's a question full of assumptions, too, that the world to come will be exactly the same as the world now, that in that new world to come the marriage relationship won't change, it will be the same. Now, Jesus' response in in Mark's gospel is rather cutting. This is what he says there next slide. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. That's speaking the truth in love, isn't it? (laughs) Now, Luke admits these words. He just gives Jesus' answer. We see it in verse 34. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Well, here what he's doing is he's uncovering the false assumptions on which the question is founded. Firstly, notice how Jesus makes a distinction between this age, which goes from creation of the world to to, to Jesus' return, and and, and that age, the, the, the kingdom to come. People now and people then will not be the same. Notice how he says, the sons of this age marry, the sons of the resurrection do not. And so Jesus makes it absolutely clear here that marriage and being given in marriage is not a part of our future heavenly existence. Now, Jesus gives the reason, verse 36, for they cannot die anymore. In this world, people die. Marriage is therefore a necessity. We must marry, we must come together, we must produce children, or the race will not continue. But that's not going to be an issue in heaven. People don't die anymore. They can continue on forever. And more than that, our our, our resurrection bodies will not be like our current bodies. See, now our bodies are filled with, with weakness. They're filled with mortality. One day we will have perfect bodies. We see that in Jesus' own resurrection body, which is a a picture of what ours will one day be. In Luke 24, Jesus is raised from the dead. It's it's still a physical body. They can can touch him. It's still recognizably Jesus. He he bears the wounds of his crucifixion. But he's different. He's he's exalted. He's glorified. He he walks through walls. He's, He's immortal. And that resurrection body is a foretaste of what ours will be like. Jesus is saying the resurrection will usher in a a whole new plane of existence. We'll have perfect bodies. We'll, We'll live in a perfect world. And all that spoils this world will be gone. And Jesus says, in that world, with those perfect bodies, marriage is no longer necessary. And it's not just because we'll no longer die, though, it's because the whole purpose of marriage will have been fulfilled. Uh, Yesterday I attended a wedding and we were reminded of this uh, from the sermon on Ephesians chapter 5, that that, that God designed our human marriages to be a a pale picture of that ultimate marriage between Jesus and his church. And so husbands are to love their wives as as Christ loved the church and and wives are to, to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ, because ultimately our our human marriages, they point to something that is bigger and and, and greater, a a perfect unity between God and his people. And so when that new age dawns, there's no longer a need for human marriages. We'll be in the perfect marriage. We'll be like the angels, devoted entirely to God, living in perfect relationships. And so the whole basis of the question is wrong. It's based on false assumptions. And Jesus easily escapes the trap. Before we go on, let's consider some of the implications we find here for our understanding of marriage and singleness. I wonder for those of us who have happy marriages this morning that this might be a somewhat uh, disappointment to know that I won't have an eternal marriage. We're told here marriages are lifelong, but they are not eternal. Now, it's, uh, it's good that we love our spouse enough that uh, we're willing to spend eternity with them. Not every spouse is that happy in their marriage. But what we need to grasp is that our experience in heaven will far exceed even the most perfect of marriages now. In heaven, we'll have a perfect relationship, not only with Christ, but but with each and every person around us. There will be no more sin. There will be no more secrets. There will be no more weaknesses. There will be no more disappointments in our relationship. It will be perfect. We will not be disappointed. It will be better than now. But often, as we... Uh, elevate marriage as we rightly do as a picture of Christ in the church, there's a danger that we devalue singleness. And we see in these these verses that it is it's not only marriage that points forward to heavenly realities, singleness does as well, For in heaven there will be no marriage. We will be like the angels, devoted to serving the Lord. And so it is true that, that single people also have the opportunity to foreshadow that heavenly reality in their single lives now. In the end, what we see here is that life is not about marriage. Some of us here this morning desire to be married, but may never be married. And that may be a very painful and difficult experience. Marriage is a good gift of God. It is something to be desired. But these verses tell us marriage is not ultimate. I'm not a lesser person if I don't get married. Of course, Jesus never got married. It's Chinese New Year in a couple of days, isn't it? Uh, and there's, there'll be some of us here this morning who are looking forward to the unpal's and are dreading the questions from the relatives. He's still single, but beneath those questions, really, is a form of idolatry, isn't it? Uh, where marriage has been so elevated that it that it hurts single people, as if they are less human. But life is not about marriage. Now other people might say, Look, well, if there's no marriage in heaven, then I better go and get married now while well, I still can. <laughs> and undermine that, well that's underlying that is another form of idolatry, isn't it? So I'm saying that my, my, my life only has meaning and it only has purpose, it's only worth living if, if I get married. It's a lie. Oh Tim Keller has these uh, helpful questions for identifying our idols that are on the screen. Is there something too important to me? Something I'm telling myself I have to have. Is the reason I feel so down because I've lost or failed at something which I think is necessary when it is not? Am I feeling angry or bitter because of an inordinate desire for someone or something that only Jesus can really give me? And so this passage gives resurrection hope, both for single people and for married people. It tells us life is not about marriage. Life is about living in the service of Christ. And whether I'm single or I'm married, and whether I have a happy marriage or I've got a difficult marriage, whether I'm widowed or whether I am divorced, I can set my hope on the world to come, where I will be a son of the resurrection, I will have the most perfect and intimate relationship with Jesus, a relationship that will last forever because I will never die. That is what life is about. That is our hope. And it is a certain reality. Having shown the foolishness of the Sadducees' question, now he turns to address their unbelief in resurrection. And look how he goes on in verse 37. He says, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. It might seem like a rather obscure verse to try and prove the resurrection of the dead. We've already seen many unambiguous ones earlier in the talk. But we need to remember that the Sadducees only accepted those first five books of the Bible. And so this verse is a good one. Uh, In fact, God himself is literally speaking in this verse. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And the key to understanding this verse is the tense. Remember your grammar? It's the present tense. He's saying God is in an ongoing relationship with these people. You can't have an ongoing relationship with a dead person, can you? You'd expect God to say, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but I'll be your God now. But the fact that God continues to be their God must imply that death is not the end. He will continue to be their God and he will continue to keep his promises to them. And so Jesus says that the Sadducees didn't even understand the few books of the Bible that they kept. In fact, what they'd done is they'd used one verse to deny the clear teaching of all the other verses in the Bible. Now, we must beware that we don't make the same mistake as the Sadducees. Uh, the 39 articles, which are the, the doctrinal statement of the Anglican Church, they say this in Article 20, just a bold part, that we may neither uh, uh, so expound one place of Scripture that it be repugnant to another. We may not so expound one place of Scripture that it be repugnant to another. In other words, what he's saying is you, you, you can't jump to one passage of the Bible in exclusion to all of the others. You can't just uh, focus on one part of the Bible that you like because it, it seems to support your own preconceived ideas. That's not how the Bible works. The Bible has one author standing behind it. It has one message, and all the parts of the Bible fit together. And so by including this passage, Luke helps us to see unambiguously that both the Old Testament and Jesus himself taught the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. It is a reality that we can be certain of death is not the end. We will not simply vanish from existence. There is life after death. Those who, who scoff at the idea of resurrection show how little they understand of the power of God or the character of God. Surely if, if God could create the universe out of nothing, and, and that's what he did. The universe didn't just spout out of it into existence by itself. If he can create life out of nothing, surely it's not difficult for him to bring life from the dead. In fact, is it not inevitable that a loving God would seek to bring life from the dead for his people? Well, it's a glorious truth. And it has wonderful implications for us. I don't know about you, but how, how I long for a world that has no more death. We live in a world of death, a world of disappointments, a world where our hopes and our dreams do not always materialise, a world of suffering and injustice. What a glorious hope to know This life is not all there is. We don't actually need everything to be perfect in this world. We look forward to the perfection in the next world. I can be single in this world and still have hope. I can be in a difficult marriage and still have hope. I can be widowed or sick or unemployed or depressed and still have hope because this world is not all there is. What a glorious message. But notice, not everyone shares this hope of the resurrection. Look back in the passage at verse 34. Jesus says, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to obtain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither married nor are given in marriage. They cannot die anymore. They are equal to the angels and the sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. And so the implication is fairly clear here. Not all who are sons of this age, that's all of us, will be sons of the resurrection. It is only those who are considered worthy. And what does that mean? Well, elsewhere in the Bible uh, we are taught that all people will be raised from the dead. Jesus says this in John chapter 5. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So all people will be raised, irrespective of their beliefs. But some will be raised to eternal judgment. Some will be raised to eternal life. So that is what Jesus is saying in Luke 20. Not everyone will share in the resurrection to life. Not everyone will be a son of the resurrection. It is only those who are worthy, only those we'll see in a moment, who rightly respond to Jesus. But for those who do rightly respond to Jesus, what a glorious hope it is. Well, you see the scribes' response in verse 39. Some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Well, once again, Jesus has evaded the trap. Once again, his opponents are silenced, and in this boxing match, it is now Jesus three and the religious leaders zero. Every possible group has come at Jesus in this Chapter The Pharisees have come, the nationalists have come, the scribes have come, the Sadducees have come, the leaders of the people have come. They've tried to trap him in his ministry, in politics, in theology, and every time Jesus has prevailed. And now it is Jesus' turn to finish the bout with a knockout punch as he brings a question of his own. And it's the question at point two How can David's son? Be his Lord? How can David's son be his Lord? You see the question in verse 41. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Now that is a very good question. And it's a very difficult question to answer. Now, the Old Testament indeed declared that the Christ was David's son. You can see in 2 Samuel 7 on the screen, God promised David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever I'll be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. So that part is right. The Old Testament indeed declared that Christ was David's son. But Psalm 110, which Jesus quotes here, is is tricky. Now if we go back to the psalm, let's put it on the screen, we see that there's two lords. The Lord says to my Lord. And the first Lord, which you see there in all capital letters, is God's personal name. It is the name Yahweh, I am, that we read of in the Exodus 3. But the second Lord in lowercase refers to the master, to the king, the Messiah. But notice how David, who is the king, calls the Messiah my Lord, that is my King. Now that is very confusing. Because a son cannot become king unless their father dies first. So how can David call his son his Lord? No father will ever bow down to their son. No uh, no father will ever call their son Lord. The son will call the father Lord. That's how it works. Now notice in the passage there's no answer to Jesus' question here. They've asked him three questions. Each time they've been silent, Jesus asks one question. They haven't a single word. But what Jesus wants us to do here is reflect on his identity. He's already claimed to be the Christ, the son of David. But how is it that he can be both the son of David and the Lord of David? Well, there's only one way that that can be the case. And that is that he is not just human. He is divine. Chapter 20 has been this clash of authorities, the religious leaders challenging Jesus. Where did you get this authority from? Here is the answer. Jesus is the human descendant from David. He is the the promised king who will rule over an eternal kingdom. But Jesus was even greater than David. He was the, the Lord in every sense. He was divine. He was God the Son. He was the second person of the Trinity who eternally existed even before David was born. Jesus didn't just come into existence at his birth. He has forever been the divine Son. And so Jesus, the descendant of David, is the Lord of David. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God in human flesh. But Jesus' decision to quote this psalm here is even more significant because of the future to which it looks. Have a look again. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies Your footstool. That's a graphic picture, isn't it? There you have the enemy so enslaved and defeated that he rocks back on his armchair and puts up his feet. Now, in the next few chapters, Jesus will be killed by his enemies. The religious leaders will succeed in having him arrested and crucified, but Jesus wants them and us to understand that is not going to be the end of the story. In Luke chapter 24, God will raise Jesus from the dead. In Acts chapter 1, he will ascend into heaven. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter will explain the significance of these events as he he quotes the very same passages to Samuel 7 and Psalm 110 in that first sermon on the first day of the church. And you can see his conclusion. In verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus proves that he is the eternal king who will rule forever. His ascension proves he is the Lord of Psalm 110. He is now seated at the right hand of God. He is in the place of ultimate power and authority. He will one day return to judge the living and the dead. And when he does, God's work will be complete and every one of his enemies will be placed under his feet. These religious leaders don't even begin to understand how foolish they are in opposing Jesus' rule. Yes, there is life after death. And Jesus will be the Lord of that resurrection age. All his enemies will be crushed. He will rule forever and ever. Well, I wonder among us this morning, there might be some who have questions about Jesus. There can be good reasons, of course, for coming to Jesus with questions. If we want to genuinely know who Jesus is, let me encourage you, keep asking your questions of Jesus. Jesus always gave answers to those who genuinely sought him. But there could be others of us here today who are a little bit more like the religious leaders. We're asking questions, but the questions really are designed to avoid having to make any kind of response to Jesus. It's the same kind of questions, isn't it? How do we know the dead are raised? How do we know that the Bible is reliable? How do we know that science doesn't disprove Christianity, etc., etc.? But in the end, this chapter shows that there's only one question that really matters in life. And it's not the questions that we ask of Jesus. It's the question that he asks of us. And this is his question. Who am I? Am I just a human being, a good teacher, or am I Lord, risen king? God in the flesh, judge of the living and the dead. Who am I? And Jesus wants us to be absolutely certain this morning that our answer to that question determines whether we will be those who are resurrected to life or resurrected to death. Our only hope of sharing in this glorious resurrection is to place ourselves under his rightful rule if we refuse we will find ourselves under his feet we need to come to jesus and say to him you are lord of my life you are my God. We need to, to recognize that the only reason I can be counted worthy to belong in that kingdom is because he came and he laid down his life for us on the cross. He was not a victim of injustice. He, was, he did not lose control. He deliberately laid down his life for his enemies. He paid the penalty for our sins. He was raised from the dead so that we might have life. Have we recognized Jesus rule in our lives? That is the question, above all questions. As we finish, let's consider a few implications of what we've seen just briefly. Firstly, we see Jesus is our true teacher. As Jesus is opposed by the religious leaders of his day, Jesus comes out on top. There's no contest. It's a knockout. Jesus stands up to scrutiny in every way from the fiercest of opponents. He is the true teacher of God's word. He can teach us the truth about marriage. He can teach us the truth about singleness. He can teach us the truth about life after death. And that is the same today. We should not be surprised when, when, uh, when religions or, or systems today question Jesus or undermine his rule. But no matter what system or religion it is, we can be confident it will stand the test. The New Testament is consistent with the Old Testament. And so when we're faced with alternative views about marriage or about singleness or when we're faced with alternative views about life after death or alternative views about God, we can trust Jesus' words. He is the true teacher. Secondly, we see that Jesus is our only hope of experiencing resurrection after death. And it's not simply a wishful thinking. For that hope of resurrection is taught in the Old Testament. It is affirmed by Jesus in the New Testament. And it is founded upon the historical fact of Jesus' own resurrection. For 2,000 years ago, he conquered death and he proved that there is an afterlife. And what a hope that is. When our faith is challenged, when we struggle with sin in our lives, when we are faced with human mortality, we have the hope of life after death. I hope you will share that hope in the coming days as we meet with friends and family members. Because the third truth we see this morning is that only those found worthy will share in this resurrection to life. It is only those who will recognise the lordship of Jesus who will enjoy his rule. And so our passage this morning tells us life is not ultimately about marriage or singleness or our families, or our work. The future that we are headed to is one where we are like the angels. In joy we know him, we love him, we serve him perfectly, and we enjoy the most intimate relationship possible as we know the God whom created us. That is the future hope that we look forward to. Let us cling to it and proclaim it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that uh, death is not the end. Jesus is risen. And we look forward in hope to his return as our Lord and King. Father, we pray as we go out in the coming days to meet with friends and family members, that you would give us opportunities to share this hope with those who still live under the shadow of death. We pray that you would save many. And Father, for those of us who struggle in various ways with life in this world, whether in our work or relationships or our family or our health, Father, we pray that you would help us to hold on to this firm and solid hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.